Hi guys, welcome back to Tell Me About It with Jade Iovine. I'm Jade Iovine, and every week I sit down with impressive women to talk about the things that often get left off of our social media highlight reels. We get very real about the hardships behind their successes, the insecurities, mental health crises, rejections, losses, and bloopers of our very, very imperfect lives. The only hope is that we make each other feel less alone in our shittiest moments by sharing that other women, even the ones we admire most, go through the same things that we do. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to Eileen Kelly. Eileen is the founder of Killer and a Sweet Thing, an online sexual health resource. She's also the host of podcast Going Mental with Eileen Kelly, where she expands on topics of sexuality and intimacy, interviewing different media figures on what makes us go mental. Eileen has given talks on mental and sexual health at Columbia University, Brown University, on ABC's Tamron Hall, and public high schools nationwide. So this episode was super, super close to my heart because we talked about something that I've never really talked about, at least on this show, which is seeking treatment for mental illness. When I first experienced anxiety and depression, it really hit me like a ton of bricks. I hadn't experienced it before in my life, or at least not knowingly. It hit me so hard that at one point it became completely unavoidable. I was having panic attacks every single day. It was impossible for me to get out of bed. Of course, I had to. In some ways, I was super high functioning, but I just was extremely, extremely sick and depressed. It affected all areas of my life. It was hurting all of my relationships, and I had no words for it. I really had no information about what was going on even within my own mind. And I one day, you know, built up the courage and said, okay, I need help. I need help out of this hole. I don't know what's going on in my brain. I had no education on mental illness. You know, I was so lucky that my parents were super open to that fact. I'm privileged in the fact that I was able to take a break from work and I had to quit my job. And I did outpatient program, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that I was able to come and go. Like I left every day and went home and then came back in the morning. It was a mental health treatment center called PCH. And I look back on it really fondly, actually, because while I was going through like one of the hardest times in my life, I really feel like I will never have the opportunity again to really focus on myself and my mental health in the way that I was able to there. But by the same token, it came with a lot of shame for me. And that's something that Eileen and I talk a lot about. Eileen went to McLean Psychiatric Hospital, which is one of the most famous psychiatric hospitals in the world. She did inpatient treatment for five months there, where she went to class every day, lived amongst other people struggling with mental illness. I went for two months. Eileen went for five months and wasn't even allowed to have her phone, or actually I think it was her choice to completely give up her phone. So she communicated with friends through letters. She listened to CDs on a Walkman. She really, like put her life on pause to heal. But a lot of people aren't educated about mental health treatment centers. A lot of people just think that it's rehab or we'll call it that. And there's zero shame in either. Let me just set the record straight. But it's hard when you're like, no, actually there were not drugs involved. Like I just needed a mental health break. Or even if there are drugs involved, it is no one's fucking business what kind of treatment you go to. And if you want to share it with them, great. If you don't, you do not have to. No one is entitled to that information. But I think it is really important to make peace within yourself. At least it has been for me. Now I've reached the point where like, I've built my life back up. And so I'm really proud of the fact that I went and that I admitted that I needed help so, so badly. I wasn't famous before I went and didn't have all these Instagram followers I was leaving behind. She was this internet phenomenon. 
and has been since she was like 16. And she gave that all up for the sake of her mental health, you know, and I think that is so admirable at this treatment center. They taught her so much incredible stuff. Like I use a lot of the tips and tricks that my outpatient treatment taught me. I did so much group therapy. Eileen did group therapy. And we just kind of talk about the differences and similarities with our experiences and how to move on from the shame that it can elicit by entering one of those programs. We're so lucky to be able to go to these treatment centers in the first place. There are so many people that can't afford to go to them or can't stop their life and focus on their mental health. So it took me so many years to come out about my own experience because I just knew people would jump to conclusions or not understand. But it was through my conversation with Eileen, talking to my therapist and opening up to friends who all knew someone who had experienced something similar or had experienced it themselves that I was able to really own my experience. And now I'm proud of the fact that I went. So I'm really, really grateful for this opportunity to share that with you guys. And without further ado, here is Eileen Kelly. Hi, Eileen. Hi. How's it going? It's going really good. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to talk to you. I feel like we're going to unpack a lot in this episode, so I really want to jump in. But can you first give some background, like how you got started and what you're doing now? Yeah. So my name is Eileen Kelly. I am a certified online sex educator, now mental health advocate. I'm actually originally from Seattle, Washington, Mm. but I've lived in New York for the past eight years. And I started on Tumblr, actually. No way. In high school, like when I was 16, 15. And I used to write about kind of my romantic relationships and losing my virginity and Mm. just share, honestly, way too much about my life. Yes. And when I moved to New York for college, I was like, you know what? I could take my Tumblr and kind of create a website and kind of had this idea of like an Ask Alice teen version. And so that's what I did. I started, it's called Killer and a Sweet Thing. And originally I wrote all the content myself, things from like how to insert a tampon to what's it like getting an IUD put in and really across the whole board. But I realized very quickly that I was only sharing like such a narrow perspective, Mm. you know, Mm -hmm. my own. Mm -hmm. So I started asking friends who were in college at that time, would you want to write a piece for my website? And at one point we had over a hundred writers. Wow. I know. Wow. That's crazy. I love that on your website, you say that you omit all fashion and beauty content. Yes. It's so cool to not dilute the power of what you're doing with all that other stuff. Yeah, because you know? I think that becomes repetitive quickly. Like totally. there's only so many products, so many ways to do your hair. Yeah, that was yes. really important to me. I wanted it really pure sex, sex education, mental health, social mm-hmm. media, like how it's affecting our psyches was something I was really mm-hmm. fascinated by at the time. And that kind of grew into... I made a book and I had a clothing line, like a merch merchandise line. And I would go and speak at different universities across the country and to high schools. And yeah, it was a really exciting time. It was probably like three years ago, like the peak of it. 
Yeah. So you're 25 now? 25. Yeah. So I started that like young, like 19, 20. Totally. Okay. I'm thinking back to my 16 year old self. And if she had a blog, like I would truly be horrified. Like does the stuff still exist that you wrote when you were 16? It does. I mean, technically I feel like Tumblr has taken a lot of content down. I know, yeah. but I do think some of it is still out there for sure. And my website is still still exists. It's not up. It doesn't get updated anymore. Okay. Okay. But do you, you still write for killer and a sweet thing, right? No, I don't actually. Oh, you don't. Okay. No. So that's kind of, there was this big shift. I took some time off for work, which I'm sure we'll get into for some mental health reasons. And then when I came back, I just, I didn't feel like it was authentic or I was the same person to just pick up where I left off. Mm -hmm. So it was important for me to kind of figure out what are my next steps in my journey and my career. And that's where I really shifted towards mental health with Mm -hmm. my podcast and kind of some of the other things I'm working on right now. So can you tell me a little about your childhood? I know you grew up in Washington. Yeah. So I grew up really Catholic in like a super conservative Catholic bubble, like upper middle class. My mom actually was from Mongolia. Oh, no way. So I was kind of from, like, my dad is American, Irish-American, but my mom came from, like, didn't really speak English when they met. But they met over in Europe, actually. They have, like, a really beautiful love story and came to America, had my brothers and I, and my mom actually passed away when I was eight years old. So that, I feel like, is a really important part of my story, especially with the sex ed because growing up without a mom and especially I lost her so suddenly, I really had no one to turn to for questions about my body, sexual health, even mental health. So that's what really inspired me to start talking on Tumblr. It came from a really vulnerable place. Absolutely. How did she pass? If you don't mind me. She passed away from a brain aneurysm. So it was like very sudden. It was like everything was normal one second and then the next second. It's like. And how old were you? I was eight. Oh my God. Yeah. So that is a huge part of your story, obviously. Yeah. And then obviously there was, you know, probably turmoil after she passed, you know, like your family rebounding from this tremendous loss. Like, did you feel kind of lost for a few years like afterward or how did that manifest itself like for the like the rest of your childhood I mean I'm I was so young I don't really remember to be honest I have like big blocks of my childhood memories like kind of canceled out I don't remember a lot Mm -hmm. but my dad never got remarried Mm -hmm. he didn't really date people actually for years and years after she passed away So it was really tough. I mean, growing up also in like a house full of boys after an event like that, it wasn't exactly like an emotionally safe space. Mm. No one sat us down and was like, it's okay to feel sad about this, to mourn. It was almost like the elephant in the room. It just never got talked about, which I think Mm. then obviously manifested in each of my siblings and my romantic lives or just our lot like how that kind of trauma has absolutely manifested itself and also I've been open on my podcast about this but my dad did have a drinking like a pretty severe drinking problem after my mom passed away was his way of coping Mm -hmm. so it was just a messy time and 
Honestly, sometimes I'm thankful that I don't really remember parts of it. Definitely. Knowing from experience, having an addict in your family can really generate a lot of shame and make it hard for you to be vulnerable in a lot of ways. So how did you channel that desire for connection and turn it into an ability to be vulnerable and become this internet phenomenon? I think because I came from a household where like no one was vulnerable and I just wanted something more. I wanted deeper relationships. I didn't feel like I had super deep, meaningful relationships, even with my family members. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just feeling so alone, honestly. So I was just kind of a go-getter in that sense of like, okay, well, if I'm not going to find it here in this household, like I'm going to go fucking find it somewhere else. Right. So let me sit in my teenage bedroom and like type away to other teenagers online. And, and I connected with a lot of people. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I shared my story and in turn, they shared theirs. And I was like, holy shit, there are people that actually talk about the things that matter. Yes. And it's not that my siblings or my family didn't want to. I I genuinely feel like they just weren't taught. And so they were incapable in certain ways because of how they were raised and then just gets passed down. They did their best with the cards that they were dealt, essentially. Yes. Right. So- you're, you mentioned your dad is a conservative Catholic guy. But how does that fit with your being so open about sex and getting into that world at a young age? Yeah, I mean, I never felt like he was super judgmental or shaming about sex or anything. It was just kind of like not a topic we discussed. So there was no like negative reinforcement. It was just like, mm. I'm a dad with like a young daughter yeah. A single dad who's growing up into a teenager. I don't really know how to talk to her about any of this mm-hmm. stuff. It makes me uncomfortable. Yes. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go talk to my friends about it, my friends' moms, or scour the internet for information. Mm-hmm. And I mean, my dad doesn't really even know what Instagram is. Like, obviously, over the past past couple of years, like I've tried to explain to him what I do, and I have a website, and Instagram and now I have a podcast like he didn't even really like wasn't super familiar with what podcasts are so he just comes from like a different generation yeah no I'm so grateful my dad's not on like I won't accept his fake Instagram account like (laughs) rent request like I can't I'm just like nope they're just separation of church and state here yeah so exactly so I feel like that allowed me some freedom yeah exactly yeah Okay, I don't want to take a break, but we have to. We'll be right back. So, okay, you started at 16, and then it just, like, accelerated like crazy. Like, from when you went to college and everything, you were just doing tons of things with your brand and just moving 100 miles an hour. So had you ever dealt with your mom's passing? I had seen therapists. Yeah, I saw a therapist for a while after she passed away. Mm. I don't really remember that period. I think because I was so young, it, we used to play a lot of board games. Mm. Like yeah. we would play Clue a lot. But <clears throat> I had seen a therapist in high school and I had dealt with like depressive episodes and uh-huh. anxiety, but d- couldn't really, like I didn't have names for it. I feel like no one was super aware of what was going on or could give me the language to explain what was going on with myself. Yes. So I kind of bounced from therapist to therapist, but 
I guess to answer your question, like, no, it hadn't really been dealt with yet. And I still think I had a lot more healing to do in that realm, but yeah, it is what it is. Yes. Did you? Well, no, we are works in progress. Just healing isn't linear. You know, it, it's constantly, it's every day. Did your mom struggle with mental illness at all? I mean, I was so young. So now yeah, everything I hear about about my mom is like through, you know, either the grapevine or through other people's accounts of her. But yes, I do think she did struggle with like some depression and some, yeah. some mental illness. And I, and talking to my doctors, I think so much of what I struggle with is actually like can be hereditary. And yeah, absolutely. so I do think I inherited that more from her side than my dad's. So Let's talk about that period leading up to you went away for five months for treatment at McLean, right? Yes. In Boston. Um, and that's yeah, in Boston, which is like one of the most famous mental health hospitals, right? Yes. It's a psychiatric hospital. They do have programs such as I was in a program that was off campus. It was a residential program. Okay. So I wasn't like girl interrupted in the in the ward inside the psychiatric hospital like wearing a gown like it was totally normal I wore my normal fucking clothes like yeah I could go to the store like it was pretty chill honestly yeah when I was actually probably the same age as you were 23 or 24 I got hit with a major depressive episode and just my anxiety was crazy like I was having panic attacks every single day I was very high functioning, but like I was miserable inside and just a shell of the person that I once was. And so at one point I just, I hit a breaking point and I was like, my life became so unmanageable that I I needed help. You know, I desperately needed help. So I actually went to this outpatient program, like where we did group therapy and CBT and DBT and all of these things. It was an outpatient mental health treatment center that I went to. And it was great. It was really, really helpful. But I want to know your story. Like, so when you like started from 18, let's say, like, how did you wind up in treatment? So I was living in New York. I moved to New York when I was 17. Wow. Right after I graduated high school, I knew. Are you young for your age? Yeah. I'm a, I'm an August birthday. Oh, okay. So I like graduated and I was like, get me out of here, move straight to New York, <laughs> starting school, probably like late August, September. But I spent, I had a boyfriend technically, like my high school sweetheart, yeah. but we did long distance because he didn't come to New York with me. And so I, I knew some people through high school and like middle school, but for the most part, I felt pretty like I'm going out on my own. Mm-hmm. And when you already struggle with like depression and anxiety, there were just a lot of times where I really felt like I was like alone in the world. I didn't live in the dorms. I lived in an apartment Yeah, and just like a lot of time really just having to be there for myself. And at this point in my life, I had no idea what was going on with me. Right. Like I had no, you had no language, no language, no concept of my issues. Like, I think that was the best part of going to treatment is I feel like I got a PhD in who I am as a person, what my issues are, where they stem from, what the fuck, how they've been manifesting, Mm -hmm. what I can do about it. So I spent a lot of years just being really confused and going out a lot and partying and definitely had my fair share of like doing drugs. And I don't know, 
different guys and just like wild times. And I happened to be in a really unhealthy, toxic relationship before I went away. And that didn't cause any of my issues. Right. But it definitely exasperated them. Yes. And this was also during a period when my career was like the the most successful point it had been. And it just felt like I was on a hamster wheel and I could not get off. So what did your day-to-day look like, like leading up to treatment, let's say like a month before? Were you able to get out of bed and do the things you needed to do? Like what was the breaking point? Yeah. So I actually was doing an outpatient program before I went away. Oh, okay. So I did an mm-hmm. outpatient program at Columbia in New York mm. and it's called the Columbia Day Program. And it honestly made me feel a lot more crazy Interesting. because I was living alone at the time in a super on and off, horrible, toxic relationship. So I would go all day and work on myself in group therapy, like right. all day long, Monday through Friday. And then I would go home and be alone with my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I'm also like mm-hmm. switching medication and like, yeah. it was just way too much. I needed a secure environment where I felt really safe. So I knew that I needed a higher level of care. Mm-hmm. So I had to actually convince my doctors in the outpatient program and my dad to basically be like, I need to go to another program. Wow. So they, how did you find out about both the Columbia program and McLean? Yeah. So I had a boyfriend that I dated kind of after my toxic relationship. Okay. He had struggled with a lot of mental health issues actually. And so mm. he he knew about McLean. He actually found the Columbia program for me and Mm. basically was like, if you want to get help, there are options. He really helped in so many ways. So I got into the Columbia program, started that and was like, holy shit, I need to go away. I need someone to take my phone away from me. Honestly, that was a big part of it. Well, your career was on your phone, right? It still is kind of. Career was on the phone. Not only that, but like the relationship with the oh yeah the toxic relationship. It was a lot of comparison, a lot mm-hmm. of like, oh my God, he's hooking up with this girl now. Like I was driving myself insane. Right. And I didn't know how to put the phone down. Okay. I didn't have the tools to be able to like turn my phone off. It was literally like addicting. So I went to my program and and I was like, take my fucking phone. And they did for five months. Wow. Okay. I want to talk about being (laughs) away from your phone for five months because that's, I mean, right now that sounds like heaven to me. It was, it was amazing. Like, don't get me wrong. It was honestly so amazing. Like I didn't have to keep up with anyone. Like I literally just got to focus on the present. I got to focus on my therapy and like, yeah, I saw you listen to like CDs. Like you didn't have, right. Yeah, I had a literal, a pink CD player. Oh my God. Like we had Apple TV and like we could watch movies and TV and stuff, but I wasn't, I had no social media, no Instagram, no Snapchat, no texting anyone. Wow. Before I started treatment, I like wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping, like just a mess to say the least. How did it manifest itself for you? Yeah. My anxiety was so high. I wasn't really Mm -hmm. sleeping and 
eating either. I just wasn't hungry. Mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wanted to eat. I just felt like I couldn't like keep anything down almost. My anxiety was so out of control and just debilitating. Like I would have anxiety attack and I would have to go home from work early. So I actually, while I was in the outpatient program, I was taking time off of work for like my mental health. Yeah, I did that too, which is, it's hard, you know, like that's something I wanted to talk to you about having to pause your life, you know, in such a way Were you scared that your fan base wouldn't be there when you came back or? I mean, I definitely had doubts. You, especially with social media and just things changing so rapidly. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my gosh, what if people forget about me? What if even yeah. my friends forget about me not speaking to me for five months? I had a lot of doubts, but at the end of the day, I was like, I'm not even going to have a career if I keep going the way that I'm going, because I was so depressed and so suicidal. Yeah. So that was kind of at the back of my mind. Right. Did you lose any friendships during that time? No, I wrote letters and I was allowed to receive letters. And I honestly have like hundreds of letters now in this like box that I keep in my room that are like my prized possession. Wow. Like just to have my friends really like pause their lives and sit mm-hmm. down and write to me about what was going on with them in that moment is so mm-hmm. much more special than a FaceTime call, a phone call or a text message. Like totally. I almost feel like I got to know my friends better and more intimately while I was away. Absolutely. It's just like the art of letter writing is completely lost and and it, you're right it is just so much more intimate you know that when someone like takes a pen to paper and just like writes their feelings and you're going through something so deep and profound that like i feel like the friendships that lasted through that and like they showed you like emotional support those are really good friendships 100%. did you keep in touch with your boyfriend i i mean i wasn't allowed to text them or right. you know obviously or call the one who helped me find McLean, he wrote me, like, maybe we wrote each other one letter each during the five months. Yeah. And honestly, it's like, I keep it so close to my heart. It's like yeah. the kindest thing anyone's ever written me. And so we did keep in touch very minimally, but it okay. was kind of the type of thing of like, I hope you're okay. I'm so mm-hmm. proud of you. You're working on yourself. I'll be here when you get out at least as a friend. And he has proven that to be true. Are you still friends with him? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So walk me through a day at this treatment center. Okay. So you wake up, you can like eat breakfast by yourself, basically. Like there's like a common area and we have a kitchen and stuff. So. Oh, nice. And like we go to the store twice a week. So they provide certain items like cereal, oatmeal. Okay. But if you wanted like eggs, but if you wanted more specific things, you would mm-hmm. have to buy them with your own money. So I don't know, like yogurt or whatever my breakfast would be before class. So Monday through Friday, we had class and it was like psychoeducation. So that's so cool. What is anxiety? What is depression? And McLean is affiliated with Harvard. So, Mm. and that's kind of one of the reasons I really wanted to go there because they are linked with the Harvard Medical School. So they're just Mm -hmm. like, they get all the newest research and there's people who are working on their PhDs at Harvard that actually work with us. 
Oh, wow. So you have a Harvard researcher that you meet with once a week and they tailor like it's part of their PhD studies. Okay. They tailor like basically to whatever you're dealing with. So if someone has really severe, I don't know, they're scared of spiders, for example, Mm -hmm. they would work with you on exposure therapy. Right. On like, yeah. So that was kind of what that part would be. So you'd be in class like two classes and then you have lunch, everyone eats together. And then you have two more classes. And then in the afternoon we have like a study hall because you had Mm -hmm. a lot of homework. Yeah. But the homework was really like introspection. Like I felt really depressed today. Why did I feel depressed? What led to those feelings? How did I deal with it? Right. And during that study hall, you go and see your primary therapist. Mm -hmm. So you see a therapist twice a week. And then you also see a psychiatrist once a week. Oh, wow. You see the Harvard researcher doing exposure or whatever specifically you're working on once a week. Okay. And then you see a family therapist once a week. Wow. That's a lot of fucking therapy. Yeah, it's a lot. But it's like, it sounds so intentional. And like, you learned a lot, like taking class and like having the language to express, like we talked about earlier, like is so important. And I think it's a part of it that people don't realize because it frees you from shame because shame can't survive when it's language, you know, because shame thrives in silence. So it's like if you have the and I think it's probably why you're able to like podcast and talk about it now is because like they gave you those tools, which is so cool. A hundred percent. Yeah. And just knowing what's going on with you and knowing like, okay, some of this is biological, Mm -hmm. just really helps you not feel crazy. Like, okay, there are legitimate reasons why I feel this way. Right. And you're able to like give yourself a little more grace because of that. So first of all, how old were you when you were in the hospital? So a year ago, I got out in like May. So So 24. 24. Yeah. So you you got out in 2020, May 2020? Yeah, I got out like right in the height of COVID. Yeah, I was going to say, what was that like? I actually discharged like a month before I was supposed to. I had probably had like three weeks left, but I was like, I want to be home with my family. I don't know what's happening with this COVID. Like, yeah, it was scary. I didn't have a phone. So I'm like, I just want to go and like be with them. I've been in this program over five months. Like, I think I've gotten the gist and what I'm going to get out of it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I stand by my decision that I left a little bit early, but it was, it was definitely strange. I mean, I came out of my program and the world was not the same, but almost in a way where I'm like, it was kind of comforting. Totally. Because I felt like, oh, wow, I didn't really miss that much because the whole fucking world's on lockdown and people are quarantined. Yeah. In a weird way, I kind of feel like that was a blessing that you came out at that time because you weren't just hit in the face with like busyness and back to the grind and the hustle and people grabbing at you. And yeah. And also being like, holy shit, like all of this happened while I was away. Like totally. Yeah. Like FOMO. If you're a naturally anxious person. Yes. So it was like the whole world clicked pause. Yeah. Like, I, you know, obviously COVID was so hard for so many people, but I say a lot on this podcast, like it was really like I got my blood tested or whatever and my cortisol, like the stress hormone level was in half from like what it was before. Like it was so healing for me for everyone to be on pause and just like 
not have to deal with like who's invited where or like the FOMO, like you said, or like all of these things. It was really beneficial to my mental health in a weird way. Yeah, definitely. So back to treatment. First of all, how long is it? was it supposed to be? So it's, they say two month minimum. You have to okay. come for two months. You can't leave before then. Okay. But the reality is most people stay. It's a five to six month program. And I do feel like they're not super transparent about that. Yeah. So what, how it, what it normally looks like is you go in and you're there for five to six months and you go directly into their outpatient program in Boston. Oh. So that's oh. an additional six months. So you're really there for a year. So did you do the outpatient after? No, no. Okay. I didn't. I left and the outpatient was like kind of fucked up because of COVID. Basically mm. in this latter part of the program, you get a job and that's part of the program. Like something just like simple. You would be like a barista or bagging stuff. at. The, oh, like at a the real job. Store. Oh yeah. Like a real job. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that's part of the program to see if you can manage your anxiety depression, whatever it is in a work setting, in a work setting while still under the guidance of therapists and doctors. So they're watching you and they're making sure that you can go out into the world on your own. I mean, these are people who were having severe psychiatric issues. Right. So yeah, I'm so curious how you proved to them that you were ready to leave. Was that a weird experience? Because like you'd put yourself in, you know, like you checked yourself in and you wanted to go voluntarily. Did you ever feel powerless or or did you ever feel like I just get me out of here? Like, oh, I mean, definitely you have days where you're like, get me the fuck out of here. Like why? I mean, I had moments where I was like, I'm too healthy to be in here. I'm, I'm yeah, I had those same, moments too. like I'm not here on an ultimatum from my family or friends. Like I came here on my own volition and Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely days where it was also just too hard. And I was like, I just want to go home and lay in my fucking bed. I miss Mm -hmm. my cat. Yeah. Like I want to have sex. Like, I don't know there is, I mean, it's five months without anything. So I definitely had those moments, but yeah, at the end I was like, listen, I've been here for five months. I've worked really hard. I'm mm-hmm. ready to leave. And yeah, they were like, okay. Yeah. And like you proved yourself through your job basically also. No, so that's what happened. And also part of the reason I left early because of COVID, that part of the program got nixed. Oh, okay. Because it is part of a hospital setting. So they're, they have to abide by the hospital rules. So you're not allowed to go in and out Okay. when COVID started. Interesting. So it really like, like in alert where they, you couldn't leave. Like we would go to the store once or twice a week and we would do an outing, like go ice skating or yeah. rollerblading or go to a museum. And those things got taken away when COVID happened. And those were the things that kind of got me through the week because I didn't have a phone. I'm looking forward to fucking going to Whole Foods on Saturday. Yeah. That was like my yes. most exciting part of my week. Yes. And when we couldn't do that anymore, I was like, I, I can't do this program. Yeah, this is going to become detrimental to my mental health. Yeah. So that's kind of was one of the big reasons. And the part of the program of getting the job wasn't happening. So I'm like, why would I spend another month here if I'm not even doing the part of the program that it it was designed to be? Exactly. Exactly. Did they let you watch the news there? Like, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They didn't censor like television or movies. Oh, no, not censored. I mean, everyone's adults. No, nothing was censored. I mean, when you go to the store, I could buy gossip magazines. I could buy newspapers. Like that was kind of like 
my fun thrill of feeling like I had my phone for a second. Yeah, like, for sure. Reading like, I don't know, like, okay, Hollywood, whatever the fuck. Yeah. Is it an all-female thing, right? Yeah. Do they have like all-male groups also? I think they have a young boys program for that. Okay. But, and I but I don't know. I think honestly, mostly men who deal with those kind of issues, it's really fucked up and so sad, but a lot of times they just go to jail. Yep. And Absolutely. there's not as much of like a safety net for men. Mm-hmm. That's definitely true. Did you make friends in the program? I did. I don't really keep in touch with any, to be honest, Yeah. but I did have great friends and people. I feel like, holy shit. I'm like, I know everything about you and you know everything about me no it's like it's weird to me sometimes like I lay awake at night and I'm like I remember the people from my group you know like group therapy or whatever and I'm like those people I don't keep in touch with them but like they know me so intimately it's just crazy to know that some people out there that you don't talk to like ever just know you on that level but for me like it took me like honestly a year and a half for me like from my breaking point on to really like own what I'd been through, you know, and it was only through like other people's stories that I was able to do so. You pretty quickly were able to be open about it. Can you kind of talk about how you got your life back afterwards? I mean, I feel like I was open even like I remember the night before I entered the program, I was in Boston. I had been writing this for like a couple of days. I wrote like a big post. Yeah. Being like, I'm about to go dark on the internet for like months. I'm giving up my phone. Like, this is what I've been struggling with. I don't know. I always felt that kind of relationship attachment to my audience, like this very vulnerable, open relationship between us Mm -hmm. since the Tumblr days. And I just Mm -hmm. felt like, you know, I could have sent out texts to my close friends and then just hopped off the face of the earth. I don't mm-hmm. owe anyone an explanation, but it yeah. also felt therapeutic to just be like, listen, I've been really fucking struggling. It may not look like it on my Instagram. I post these cute photos and I've been traveling or I don't know, working in this way and another, but this is the reality. What goes on behind closed doors? Yeah, you're so lucky you found that truth out so early in life that like your vulnerabilities are like are your connection points with other people you know I think that takes some other people up until they have a baby maybe or like to you know to realize that there is such a collective like shared experience because for me like I felt so ashamed for so long you know and I think I let that fully take over because I was like I said like such a perfectionist that I, I until I came out of the hospital and like I think through group and everything realizing that there are other people that went through the exact same thing I was able to find so many connections from that but it's cool that you learned that at a young age but I wonder what was your relationship like with social media before and then how did it change after I think there is this aspect of social media and I think I'd be lying if I said it was it wasn't easier like it was very easy to be so open behind a screen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like I'm meeting all these people face to face or honestly, some of the stuff I was struggling with, I didn't tell my friends or those close to me. It was easier to, to kind of be alone by myself and then put it out to the world. Mm-hmm. And that's a relationship I've really had to assess for myself because I've been online for so long, mm-hmm. almost nonstop since I was 16. 
Totally. So now that I've come out, I do think I'm more cautious about Mm -hmm. what I put out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been still open. Like when I came back, I talked about what my program was like. And I've been, I think with the podcast specifically, I want to talk about these types of things, Mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm just a little more cautious about social media. Yeah. And how do you handle your phone now? Like, do you take breaks or like, do you allow yourself to be on it as much as you want? Like, are there boundaries you had to put in place? There definitely were boundaries right when I discharged for the couple months after. And then that was something I worked with my doctors on. Like, holy shit, I had problems related to my phone, have been Mm -hmm. off it for five months and I'm about to discharge. They can't just like give me back like a bottle of alcohol or like a bag of drugs, you know? So how do we work on that? And so I set those limits. I think I... I had like a trap account or something and they helped me delete those. And What's a trap account? Like a fake Instagram that oh, okay. my friends follow. Yeah. And like I deleted that for a while and yeah, just trying to not be so reliant emotionally on the phone and also external validation, this external admiration from like followers, fans. Right. So One thing that I love I've heard you talk about is like in your program, they teach you how to get out of bed, like with depression. Can you share kind of how? (laughs) For those of us wondering. So, no, I mean, you just literally have to get out of bed. Like we, you have a time you cannot be late for the first class. If you're late for the first class, they take away half of your session with your primary therapist. Interesting. Which is weird because it's like, okay, yeah. I'm in a program. Why would you, if I'm fucking up, why would you take away my therapy appointment? Right. But everyone, you want your therapy appointment. Like, yeah. You want to bitch about the program or yes. talk yes. about how you feel. So it is a motivator. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of it. But yeah, you have a time you have to be up and you, everyone gets an alarm clock and wow but it just felt so safe like you have counselors who are there 24 7 you ever Mm -hmm. have they're there in the middle of the night too so if I'm having a nightmare or anxiety attack I can go downstairs and knock on their door and they'll sit with me and do like they're called check-ins like a five minute kind of what's going on with you how can I help you what tools have you been learning to help you and we'll go through it So it's really teaching you to be like autonomous and not rely on other people or things. Yeah. Like hearing about this program makes me, I'm like, shit, I should have gone to like this (laughs) place. My place was wonderful, but it was like outpatient. And where did you go? I went to PCH. Have you ever heard of it? Yes, I have. Yeah. So it was, it was good, but it was like getting to go home, getting to have your phone. It's not different. the full. Yeah, it's different. Exactly. But no, it helped me. So I'm super grateful for it. I don't mean to shit on it, but it was like, but this place sounds like college compared. You know what I mean? Like that feels like elementary school. It definitely was. But, and I think I do a bad job of this, even on my own podcast where I just make it sound so fucking amazing. I know. I'm like, it sounds really nice. <laughs> I mean, it's nice, but also at the other time it's fucking horrible because of it course. is so much about helping yourself. So mm-hmm. there's moments where you're like, I do want to stay in bed like 
fuck you. I don't want to go to class. And they're like, no, you literally have to. And it's weird from going alone and like being my own boss and having a successful like career. So much autonomy. So much autonomy to having none. Like I literally gave up all of my freedom. There were days where I felt like I'm fucking in jail. Yeah. I felt that way. Like even in outpatient, like I, I, cause I gave up my job and like you lose all your freedoms, but I think that's the only way to heal. Like, is it, you know what I mean? If like stuff is taken from you, you can't like just, you can't live your life exactly how you were living it and do treatment and like expect it to work. Right. Well, like even when we would go to the store, like you have to have a chaperone until you like get to a certain point in the program where you're allowed to walk around the store by yourself. And some of the fucking people in my program are in their forties and, and moms. And they're like, I have to walk around with a chaperone. Like, are you insane? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's crazy. No, but there that's are just... moments where it feels honestly demeaning. And I think that is something that doesn't get talked about, talked enough about in the mental health realm is like, at the end of the day, you are a patient and there is so much stigma like, what am I going to do? I'm not going to like stab someone at the grocery store. Like, why do I have right. to have someone walking around with me? No, I totally relate with that. Like being so monitored and hovered over can be really shame inducing. So how did you recover from that shame inducing experience and come out on the other side and start a podcast about it? I don't know. I think because I felt like, wow, I feel so much better. Like when I got out of there five months later, I felt like a different person. Totally. And I had gone down on my meds. I had, I had really learned how to manage my anxiety and depression Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just got out of the program and was like, I'm not struggling with the things I was struggling with even just six months ago. So now I'm ready to talk about them. It felt like a scar, like not a wound at that mm-hmm. point. That's, that's, yeah, I feel like that's, you know, maybe why I waited even longer because my program was so short. Like I wasn't able to reach that point until much later. So did you feel like, did you come back to the world and people were like, and Susie slept with my boyfriend? And like, did you get like a catch up of all the drama? Yeah. I mean, I literally got those in the letters too while I was there. Like I have such funny letters of like one of my friends being like, oh yeah, I have a boyfriend now. Like, I was like, holy shit. I had no idea. Or like this person did this to me, like just, and it was so fun. I'm like, oh man, I have like this gossip and writing. This is going to be hilarious to look back on like when I'm in my sixties. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Did you feel, did you really like miss out on a lot of drama? Like, was there stuff that you didn't get in the letters that you were like, what? And honestly, not really because I mean, that was one of my biggest fears and underlying anxiety. Like people are going to forget about me. People's lives are going to be continuing while mine is on pause. But honestly, like not that much happens in like four or five months. Right. And then COVID happened and everything got paused. Stopped. Yeah. Yeah, Everyone's lives were paused. What was the family therapy like? Or like, was it one day or was it weekly? Oh no, weekly. Oh, wow. It was weekly and it was mandatory. My dad had to do therapy with me. Wow. What was that like? It was honestly great. I feel like the the family therapy portion of the program might have been the most beneficial for me. Mm -hmm. And I just think my dad got to learn so much more about me and really who I am and what makes me tick and what I struggle Mm -hmm. with from the perspective also of like, 
one of the best doctors in the country and she could really talk him through well, actually, this is what Eileen means, or actually, Peter, this is what right. anxiety is, or it is a brain chemistry thing with like her amygdala and like really help translate what I was struggling with to, to have him understand me and me understand him too. Yeah, without a mediator, without a therapist there, so much of it can turn into blame rather than hereditary science. It's brain chemistry more than it's nature more than it is nurture. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it's equal. I'm not a professional. But what does your mental health look like today? Like, what were the things that you held on to from your treatment? Like, do you see a therapist? Do you see a psychiatrist? Like, what's... So when I got out during COVID, I actually still worked with my... They allowed me because of COVID to work over Zoom with my same therapist and my family therapist. So I continued family therapy for a couple months into COVID. And then I With your brothers too? I didn't do it with my brothers. I did it with my dad. Okay. Wonderful. Um, My sister did come on one. She came into one session, but I continued to work with my same primary therapist up until today. And I love her. And I also feel like she knows me so well. She Mm -hmm. saw me in such a unique environment where, I mean, the Basically, the the premise of that program is since you're living there, they see like, I don't know, even if you're cooking dinner and you get really flustered or have a panic attack on spot, they then have notes and hear from the counselors who are there 24-7. So it's not like I'm in an outpatient program or I'm at home and I get in a fight with my boyfriend And then I talk to my therapist about it and I'm only giving a really unique perspective. That's Mm -hmm. maybe it is how I feel like the fight went down, but it's not the whole truth. Whereas there, there's literally people watching you and taking notes. I mean, it's kind of like you're a science experiment. Yeah. And, and then they relay it to the therapist who, yeah, really gets a like 360 view of who you are, how you act under stress how you act in different situations. So my, to, to say my therapist knows me well is an understatement. Oh, no, me too. Like my, I found mine through my treatment as well. And I'm like, I hold on to her for dear life. Like I'm like, I can't survive without her. And I think it's like you said so much because she saw me at like such a crazy low time in my point. life. That, yeah, low point that I probably couldn't articulate like even if I tried. But yeah, like- you found exposure therapy most beneficial there, right? Of family therapy. For my anxiety, I found exposure therapy to be super, super helpful. Did you do any exposure therapy while you were in treatment? I did do some exposure therapy, but I like my OCD stuff is really body related and like body dysmorphic behavior. And my meds like pretty much cancel out any, any of my OCD. So. so let's talk meds because I love my meds. <laughs> <laughs> I I mean, it's a love-hate relationship, honestly, but I'm on Lexapro. And I'm on I've Lexapro. Like, Are you too? Yeah. I'm like, I love Lexapro. It's great. Yeah, Lexapro has been a game changer for me. I'm on 10 milligrams right now. I was on 20 actually, like when I went into the program. And so I worked kind of the five months. It was really important to me because I felt kind of numbed out on 20 to mm-hmm. get to a lower dose where it's just, it's like the cherry on top. 
I'm doing well because of my talk therapy and working through my issues. And then this just helps me. It's exactly not the reason why I'm doing well. Right. One can't exist without the other. Like if you're not doing the work mentally, like you can't just expect a pill to like help you. I started Lexapro like I probably like six months before I went to the program and I just had such an amazing response. Even my doctor was like, wow, you're very lucky. We, we, you had such a awesome response to this medication. We don't have to try any other ones. So I saw that you, I think yesterday posted your beta blockers and I'm on beta blockers too. I take them sometimes before, honestly, I haven't taken, I took them for my first podcast and I haven't taken them since, but I used to take beta blockers all the time because I would do public engagements and like public speaking. Yeah. Basically beta blockers are like what a lot of people take before public speaking. And what it does is like, it doesn't give you a high or like really affect your brain at all. It just slows your heart rate. So it's like a blood you, pressure medication. Yes, exactly. So you feel like you don't have the physical symptoms of stress. Yeah. So like no much. trembling, like your palms won't be sweaty. Like, I don't know. I think about all the things that come up when I do public speaking and I'm like shaking up there, like sweating profusely through my top and it helps that so much. Totally. No, like I can't take it before a podcast though, because it's like kind of slows me down a little too much. Yeah. It's weird. I like, I I kind of just like, like to know they're there. Yeah. You know? So, okay. I want to talk about, we kind of talked about how you got started with sex education, but do you still consider that part of your career now? Or like, are you only focusing on mental health? I don't know. I'm kind of figuring it out. I feel like it is, it is really related to mental health, Mm -hmm. sex education. So, I mean, I'm just interested in talking about the topics that people don't want to discuss. And then it real life issues that relates each and every person. Mm -hmm. I'm still figuring out if I want and how to dip my toes back into sex ed Personally, it caused me so much anxiety and also exasperated a lot of underlying issues. Doing the public speaking and that kind of stuff was just way too much pressure for me. I didn't enjoy it. Like I did a lot of hosting gigs. Like I felt like I was on the trajectory to do like talk show type stuff. And that's just not something I feel like actually meshes with who I am as a person. I know. It changes you so much. Like there is just who you are before treatment and who you are after. Like there's no in between, you know. Are there things that you were able to do before treatment that you're not able to do now? I pretty much like do everything and anything. I think that is a misconception that I went away for substance stuff, which I didn't. Mm, Yeah. So I kind of let my, yeah, I drink when I want to. Like I've never really personally had an issue with that. Mm -hmm. But In terms of my romantic relationships, I do think I'm much more cautious about certain red flags and behaviors than before I went away. Mm, And like, I don't allow myself to get as stressed out, as stressed out as I once did. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm really transparent. I have a boyfriend and I'm really transparent with him of like, hey, I had these bad experiences that caused my anxiety to like quadruple. Mm -hmm. I need this from a partner. And if you can't give me that, that's fine. But this is something I know that I need. And if you can't step up to the plate, then we're just not a good match. Right. And he was able to be like, okay, no problem. And he doesn't do those things. So Yeah. So how did you meet him? 
I had actually met him in passing like a few times over the past like eight years, like maybe once or twice. Yeah. And just during COVID in the fall, he had just moved to New York from LA Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and my friend had some people over and I met him there. Like we had actually had a real conversation for the first time. Yeah. And you just think your relationships with men and just with people in general are so different than before. So different because once again, I know what my issues are. I know Mm -hmm. what I struggle with. I know what to look out for. I know Mm -hmm. how to like protect myself, protect my energy. Yeah. So I think what a lot of people with mental illness have is a lot of empathy and you must get so many stories about people who are really, really struggling. Like, is that ever hard while you're healing yourself? Not really, just because I don't think I open myself up to that too much, especially when it's from strangers. Like I do read all my DMs. I don't open a lot of them. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I have to protect. Once again, I have to protect myself. And Mm -hmm. if I'm taking on like everyone's shit and struggles, like it can become unbearable. Yeah. So nowadays, like, I think that an assumption is like when you leave treatment, like you're totally healed and like no problems anymore. Do you feel like when you are on Instagram and you compare yourself to someone else, are you more inclined to compare yourself professionally, physically, personally? I mean, I think all three. I mean, I'm human. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Yes. If I'm being honest. No, people come on this podcast and tell me they don't. Honest to God. Okay, well, that's ridiculous. Maybe even not on Instagram, but just in person, there's someone who has who gets the promotion over you. Mm-hmm. There's someone with, I don't know, whatever it is. Yes. But yeah, definitely. How do I combat that? I mean, I'm just really open with my therapist. I also feel like I'm learning to love myself so much more than before I went in, as cheesy as that sounds. And just being like, okay with the trajectory of my life. Like I feel so much more comfortable and like, I want to be here. I want to be alive. Like I want to live like a fruitful and rich life, whatever Mm -hmm. that means. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend your treatment program to other people? Yeah. McLean hospital is fucking amazing that some programs do not take insurance. So I'm very privileged in that way that I was able to pay for it, mm-hmm. but they do have certain, I, I know that they have a fund where they give out kind of like scholarships to people. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah, I recommend McLean hundred percent. I think part of the actual like hospital psychiatric facility takes insurance, mm-hmm. So you don't have to check that out. It really depends on what program. But I know it's not feasible for everyone also to take time off from your job or your life and really go away. Like I could do that. Also, I mean, there were women in my program who literally want you get into such a dire situation. It's really life or death. So you're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I mean, there are moms there who left their kids to go into this program for six months. Right. 
did you commiserate with them a lot? Like, were you like, fuck this shit? And like, was that part of the bonding? Honestly, it felt like I was in a sorority yeah. <laughs> of like kind of cuckoo women. I mean, myself included. It was honestly, I, there were so many moments where we would, yeah, laugh about and like not want to put up with the bullshit of even the counselors there. Yeah. And yeah, I had amazing times. We, we did a lot of bonding activities just on our own too. Like we literally did this freaking talent show. No way. Yeah. And we I'm would, like, I didn't have a talent show where I went. And we would bake together and yeah. dinner and like sip tea in the evenings and help oh, each other with our homework. And it was really, it was a really special time in my life. Yeah. I love that you look back on it and like that you say it's a special time in your life because it's true. It's like when else in your life are you ever able to like really pause and like reflect and heal, you know? Okay, we got to take a quick break and we'll be right back. What do you find like still triggering to this day? I think certain things with in my romantic relationships can be triggering. Like I'm very sensitive to, I don't know, like cheating stuff because I've had bad experiences in the past or Mm -hmm. because it can trigger almost an obsessive compulsive comparison where I'm like, this literally has nothing to do with you. It's my own mental illness. But if you're liking like specific types of other girls' photos, that will set me off in a way that like, I want to keep, I've worked so hard to keep that at bay. I need a partner who can be respectful of that. Yes. So you you kind of like walk into relationships now with such a different understanding of who you are and like what makes you tick and what sets you off and your triggers and all of those things. It's so empowering to know those things, you know? Yeah, and be able to kind of have those boundaries and verbalize yeah. them. Yeah. Did you feel like when you came out, you were on a different page than your friends? Like, did you feel like it was hard to relate to them again? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, with, I mean, I don't know, because I came out in such a strange time in the world with COVID, I feel like so many people were, even if they had never felt anxiety or depression, they were then experiencing it because they were like alone in quarantine. Yes. But for the most part, I do feel like I just got out of the hospital. I just experienced and realized through and through what really matters in life. Yeah. Like yeah. it's not about the material or like vapid things. It's like genuine connection or like my family. Like I want to run and hug my friends. Yeah. And also like getting those little freedoms back can make you like really appreciate life a lot more. A hundred percent. So what would you tell yourself looking back before you entered treatment? You have so much to live for. Yeah. Honestly, like it like makes me emotional to even like think about that period in my life and just like how low I felt. Mm-hmm. And like you're loved and just you need to trust that like everything's going to work out how it's supposed to and, and things are going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know like with what comes with mental illness can be a lot of shame and like you know, you do things when you're really sick and in the thick of it, like that you wouldn't do when you're clear minded. Like, do you ever feel ashamed of your past self and like your past actions? And like, how do you forgive yourself? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that's something I'm still learning to do. Mm-hmm. But there was a huge shift for me, like probably six months 
or before I went away, like when I was doing that outpatient program that actually my ex-boyfriend, the one who helped me find the program said to me, because I grew up in an environment where like mental health was really like never talked about. Right. Like it just like, wasn't a thing. So I always felt like I'm crazy. Something's mm-hmm. wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Like I'm I, broken. And yeah. And he mm-hmm. had struggled with mental health and he was kind of the first person who really sat me down and was like, you are sick. Like there is a difference. You're not crazy. You are sick. And as soon as I accepted that, it was so liberating. Yeah. Like I felt free. I'm like, I'm not crazy. Like I literally couldn't control my, control my thoughts, control certain things. And it allowed me so much space to understand and forgive myself. Yeah. Like if I'd known better, I would have done better. Yeah. If I had tools, if I had a safety net, if I had a family or that knew what was going on, that could Mm -hmm. give me the tools, take care of me. If I had been on medication 10 years prior. Like there were a lot of things that go through my mind where I'm like, yeah, I was fucking in the dark for 10 years. Yeah. What are the things that you do when you are feeling yourself like start to have a panic attack or start to have a bout of depression? What are the tools you use? Definitely text my therapist. Like she's available whenever, which is great. Mm -hmm. But there are like certain DBT skills. It's dialectical behavioral therapy. And especially like in a panic attack. Mm -hmm. So something we practice a lot, which is a DBT tip skill, which is like tip your body, chemistry, body temperature when you're Mm -hmm. in distress and it actually like slows your heart rate down and calms you down physically. Yeah. So one of those is like, if you're having a panic attack and you fill a bowl with cold water and ice and you literally put your face in it, it's horrible. It like feels like a brain freeze, Yes, but it literally will like stop you crying and like slow your heart rate. So there's all these like really, you know, research, like researched tools. Is it called like tap, tap or something like TIP? Yes. Oh my God. I forgot about that from my treatment. Wait. So what does it say? So temperature, temperature. So the temperature is like putting your face in the water. So that slow, like makes everything cold. Intense exercise is the eye. So that's like doing jumping jacks really quick or jumping down and doing some push-ups. And then there's paced breathing or progressive muscle relaxation, which paced breathing is there's a ton of different ways to do it, but you breathe in a specific pattern and it slows your heart rate. And then the paired muscle relax relaxation is almost like you squeeze your muscles like so hard and then you release them and then you keep doing it and it also slows you down. Wow. I'm like so glad you reminded me of those. I need to like start using them again. I totally forgot. I totally forgot. <laughs> so this is kind of random, but what's your relationship like with, do you care what people think? I mean, yeah, I would love, I would love to not. And I wish I didn't. And I think I waver in it. It comes in waves. Mm -hmm. If Mm -hmm. I'm feeling really anxious and not good about myself, then I'm much more kind of on edge about what people think about me and kind of paranoid. But if I'm doing really well, and honestly, I think my medication helps because once again, it's so obsessive thoughts. 
Totally. Then like for right now, I feel pretty good. I'm like, yeah, the people who matter to me, their opinion Mm -hmm. matters. Like people I love and the people who really know me, like stupid internet trolls or like gossipy people and socially, I don't give a fuck what they think about me. Yes. I, I love that. So now I'm going to kind of run you through some rapid fire questions to wrap us up. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. Okay. What's a topic or concept you wish that more women would either like stop lying to each other about or just be more open about in general? Ooh, maybe plastic surgery. Yes. Did you see that thing that said like Instagram is going to start punishing influencers that like edit their pictures or something? Yeah, I don't think it was in the US, but it was like- No, it, no. It was like you can't, they'll like flag it if you po- if you use like a Facetune or an yeah, editing so crazy. But I don't know. I just feel like it exasperates these like unrealistic beauty standards when people Definitely. aren't transparent about that. I don't blame people who aren't transparent about it because mm-hmm. it's a societal issue. And obviously if other people are seeming perfect naturally, you also want to. And, mm-hmm. but I do think specifically with Instagram and TikTok, it's like so on the rise and just gonna, it's so detrimental to people's mental health. 150%. What's a way in which you're working on yourself these days? I do therapy twice a week and I'm still on Lexapro. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't think I put myself in situations that trigger me anymore. Like I'm much more aware, like especially social situations. Yeah. I'm just more cautious about who I let into my vicinity and my space. I think when I was younger, I just wanted to go out and be at the parties and I was always looking to make new friends. And now I'm just more cautious about what type of people I want to be friends with. Yeah. What kind of social situations do you find triggering? (sighs) A lot of different ones. I'm like, I find every social situation triggering, but. I don't know. Yeah. Certain parties, if I feel Mm -hmm. like that I used to just go to because it was like a fun party. But then I'm like, ew, I actually don't get along or think any of these people are good people. Why would I be here? Totally. It's like so sobering to go through the treatment that you did that like I feel like vapid energy afterward is like you can't like your brain doesn't even process it. Yeah. What is the most off-brand thing about you? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Maybe that I think people think I'm a lot more – promiscuous than I am. Mm, interesting. And like, I don't even think it's a bad thing if I were, but I think people see my no. photos, especially when I was younger, I post like a lot of sexy pics online. Yeah, that is interesting. I would not have expected that. Like I pretty much always have a boyfriend. I don't really like, I don't like casual sex. I think I can be promiscuous when I'm with like a partner that I trust. Hmm. Yeah. But you've always been really like body positive. Because I think it's cool that you show, like, the multiple facets of a person. Yeah, dimensions of, like, who you are. You know, like, I I love that. Do you feel like you lost your voice at a certain point? Definitely. But I also think partially it was me being being really anxious and caring way too much what other people think about me. Yeah. And also being in a really toxic relationship where I just lost my confidence for a while. Right, right. And now you feel like you found your voice again. Yeah. Like, and now you podcast, which I is wonderful. Know. What is the grossest or most embarrassing thing you do when you're home alone? I like to sing when I'm home oh. alone, and I'm a, a horrible, horrible singer. 
Like, are you? So am I. No, like so bad. And I am self-aware and own up to that, but I love to sing. I love to karaoke. Like I karaoke on yes. my Apple TV all the time. By yourself? Yes. <laughs> so that. maybe that, I don't know. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. What's your Instagram handle? Where can everyone find you? What are you up to? Okay. My Instagram is my name. So at Eileen, mm-hmm. like the song, come on Eileen. So yes. E-I-L-E-E-N. I have a podcast called Going Mental with Eileen Kelly that you can find on the podcast app and Spotify and it's everywhere. You can also find me at patreon.com slash killer and a sweet thing for like more fun kind of I don't know, content yes okay perfect thank you so much this was amazing thank you for having me on all right guys that's it for me this week I hope you liked my conversation with Eileen I learned so much from her and she's just really remarkable how far she's come and I just really always appreciate when someone makes their mental illness part of their identity because I know how hard that can be and I know how much you have to wrestle with it to get to that point. So I just think she's awesome and I loved talking to her. So this is my weekly plea for you to please uh, follow the podcast. There's a little plus mark at the top right that you can see and if you are following it'll be a check mark rather than a plus mark. And please rate and comment. Leave some comments on the bottom of the page of the podcast. Let me know what you're thinking. If you're liking the episodes, just let me know what you're thinking. If you want to continue the conversation, there's a phone number on my Instagram bio. My Instagram is at Jade Iovine. If you want to DM me there, we can continue the conversation in all kinds of places. So you know where to find me. Just reach out. Okay, I'll talk to you guys next week. Bye.